Amen. Last week in 2 Samuel chapter 22, David began to praise God as he looked back on all that God had done for him. Now in chapter 23, he begins to prophesy as he looks forward to all that God is going to do. So chapter 22, praise looking back. Chapter 23, prophecy looking forward. Now, the author really begins with an important note. He says to us, he says, now these are the last words of David. Now, I want to clarify that. I don't believe in what he's saying is that from this point on that these are his last words and then it's over for him. It is close to his death, close to the end of his reign and his life, but uh, we actually read his last words recorded in 1 Kings. Instead, what I think the author is telling us are these are his last official words as king to his people. These are, these, it's a kind of a last will and testament, if you will, which you can imagine is greatly, greatly significant in what he's saying. And so what we find is we, through, through this book and through our study, we've seen the life of David unfold. We've seen his reign unfold. And, and we know that there is no greater king in all of, uh, all of Israel's history than David. No greater reign than David's reign. We, we know that. The Word of God is clear about that. But we also know that not everything has been rainbows and unicorns. Uh, we know that even though David is sincerely seeking after God, we also know that he was sincerely flawed in sin as well. And so he committed some pretty egregious sins. He had committed adultery uh, against his wife. He had then tried to cover up that sin by committing murder against her husband, putting her murder, uh, putting her husband to death. And then we saw this series of just horrific chapter after chapter of all these terrible consequences of that sin. We saw his, his, his son rape his daughter. Then that, that, that son guilty of that rape then is murdered by another one of David's sons. And then that son in turn turns towards David, tries to kill him, and tries to take his throne. It's all miserable consequences of our sin. And remember, sin always has these devastating consequences. And so we get to the end of it, and we understand at the end of his life that he wasn't perfect, yet he was the best king that God, that they ever had. And so we get to this book, and so the very last thing that the author wants to do is give us hope. And so that's what we find really in this prophecy is a prophecy of hope. It's, 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 in essence, David's saying, hey, look, I wasn't all that I was made out to be or should have been, but here's the good news. There is a greater king and a greater, and, and, and a greater reign that is coming in another one. A new king is coming. A new reign is coming. And so what he does here in this prophecy is he actually lists three descriptions. He gives us three descriptions. He describes himself. He describes uh, the, the ideal king. And then he gives a description of the ideal reign of that king. And so let's plod through this this morning in, in our last passage before we uh, close the last chapter here. And here we find, first of all, David's description of himself. If I were to ask you how, do you, how would you describe yourself? How would you go about doing that? Would you begin by describing yourself physically? Well, I'm 6'3", 220 pounds, Blonde hair, blue eyes, which is clearly not my description, but you get the point. Or, or would you talk about the things that you like? Hey, you know, I really love the movies, love good food, really love hunting. That would be a description of your pastor. Uh, or would you describe yourself in, based on your accomplishments? Hey, I've earned this degree from this institution. I, I hold this position in this company. I, I own these different material possessions. Is that how you would describe yourself? Well, these are all different ways that you and I would use ways to describe ourselves, but none of these are used by David. 
David doesn't describe him in any of these ways. In fact, he describes himself only in terms of his relationship with God. Now, that's brilliant, isn't it? You get to the end of your life, and the last thing you want to be known for is what you liked. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you liked. It doesn't matter what you accomplished in a secular sense here on earth. It really doesn't matter what your physical attributes are. All that matters before you face the final judgment of God is what? Is your relationship with God. And so he wants to be known by that. And so he begins describing that relationship first off by mentioning this, that he was the son of Jesse. You notice that in the text, he says, the son of Jesse. You say, well, why in the world would he say that? Who in the world is Jesse? Great question. Would have been the same question that people would have been asking during David's time when he came to the throne. They said, well, who's, who's dad? Who, 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 was, who was David's dad? It was Jesse. Who's Jesse? We have no idea. He was in essence, for, for, for most part, uh, not known to anyone for anything. There was no prestige behind him, no great lineage. And we understand that that comes into play for many. We understand that some people can have such great pedigrees, come from such well-known families, that they, they can give them kind of a prop in life, gives automatic kind of honor that is given to these different individuals, all because of who you're related to, whether the Kennedys, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, the Kwiatkowski, you get it, right? Uh, those names just automatically give those folks greater opportunity because who they're ultimately related to. David's saying, I wasn't related to anybody of great worth or value. Nobody really knows who I came from. This was my basic beginnings, my humbling beginnings. You know me as king. I'm telling you that this is where I came from, and David never got over that. Now, why is that significant? Well, my grandmother, she's passed now. Uh, she, her name was Hazel Stanchfield. I believe that's the greatest uh, grandmother's name in the whole wide world, Hazel Stanchfield. And, and, and she always had food in the house. Maybe this is how your grandmother was. You'd go, over and she never had just one pack or one, one bag of candy. It was 10 bags of candy. It wasn't one can of green beans. It was a case of green beans. And I would always tell my wife, though, whenever we go, you need to make sure you eat before you come because she's going to ask you, are you hungry? And then she's going to say, if you're hungry, then she's going to say, well, there's some, there's some frozen spaghetti pie in the freezer. Now, I don't know if you know what spaghetti pie is. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's basically spaghetti cooked and stuck into a pie pan and then frozen in the freezer. So if anybody comes over, you could just whip it out, warm it up, and then you could have some spaghetti pie. You understand? The problem is you had no idea how long that spaghetti pie had been in that freezer. And so, I, and, and so you understand what happens when things are in there for too long. They taste like freezer burn, right? And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about wow, that spaghetti's got a little bit of uh, freezer burn, honey. I, I mean, that freezer burn tastes a little bit like spaghetti, all right? That's, that's the kinds of freezer burn. Now, where did my grandmother get this? Not the spaghetti, but where did she get this by kind of like hoarding food like a squirrel before winter? Where did she get this? Well, she got it because of her humble beginnings, because she, she lived during a time when they didn't know when they were honestly going to get their next meal. I know that sounds like some story, but it was really true. She grew up, she said, hey, look, we had to get the food, we had to keep the food, and if we didn't eat it then, then we would store it away somewhere so we could eat it later. We never knew if we were to have the privilege of eating the very next meal. And so David finds, and that impacted her for the rest of her life. Same with David. David looks back, and the thing that he never got over is from where God had saved him. He understood that God had raised him up and he had become king, but it was nothing because of him. 
There was nothing inside of him that he believed that was intrinsically worthy of being king. Or, 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 or there was nothing about him that in his abilities or his talents should cause him to be raised up above everybody else. In fact, this is how he describes himself. He says, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. That's the key to that first section. Who was raised on high, which means he was raised to the throne. He says, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's saying in the very end, he says, you know me for being king of Israel. You know me for being the psalmist, writing all of these great songs of praise towards God. And he says, but understand, it was none about me. He goes, I didn't do this by working really hard and picking myself up by the bootstraps. I was elevated, literally raised on high by God alone. And it's what he could never get over and so for the rest of his life, he started with humble beginnings. In the rest of his life, he walked in great humility before God all the days of his life. And by looking back at this beginning, those beginnings, never forgetting about it, is what caused this great love and affection for him to constantly pour out towards God. Now, I don't know, I mentioned this before, but sometimes it's still hard for me as I'm just reading in a cursory reading of the text of Scripture to understand still why David is considered the greatest king. Because when you read Solomon, in many ways, he seemed to bypass him in a lot of different ways, right? He, 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 definitely, he definitely was wiser. He was the wisest dude on the planet. We understand that he was richer. We understand that he had a greater place of worship. He built the temple. We understand that he had a greater range of influence. There was more land that he had acquired that he was now ruling over. So it's really hard to understand how is it, when the David declares him the greatest king, how is he greater than Solomon? Only way to reconcile that is for you to come to understand that God may very well determine greatness in a much different way than you and I. When, when Solomon was asked by God, he says, what is it that I could give you? Name it and I'll give it to you. I mean, that's an interesting question, right? I mean, if God were going to ask you, hey, hey, what is it that you want? And you're like, well, there's this car and uh, that's kind of what I want. Or what is it that you would pray for? And he gets it right, right? He goes, what do you want? And he goes, I want wisdom in order to be able to faithfully lead your people. That was his response. Presto, great answer. Clearly a great answer. Why? Because God then in turns not only gives him the wisdom, smartest guy on the planet, but then he gives him droves of blessings as well because he didn't ask for those things. Amazing. But did you know that David also made a request of God? And it was different. Now, God didn't come to him and say, hey, ask for anything and I'm going to give it to you. But he did make one request. Let me read it for you. Psalm chapter 27 in verse 4 says this. David said, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Solomon asked for something great. God, give me the wisdom to do your work and your will. David asked for something far superior and far greater. He said, God, give me you. I want you. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to be known by you. I want to pursue you above all else. That's what I want. We see a New Testament of this very New Testament example of this very thing. When we get to the New Testament, we see Mary and Martha. You remember the story? They're all sitting around Super Bowl party. Hey, this is great. And and, and what happens within the story? Uh, um, 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 Martha is working like crazy. You know, refilling the chip bowl. She's filling up all the iced tea, making sure everybody's happy, running around. And then she spots Mary. Where is Mary, her helper? Mary is down on the floor before Jesus. Jesus, and she's, 
laughing. She goes into the kitchen, how dare them laugh when I'm working so hard. Now, is there anything wrong with what she was doing? Martha, serving Jesus sounds like a pretty good idea. But she begins to get upset because she's the only one doing it. She complains to Jesus. Jesus, in turn, comes and says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. He says, but few things are needed. Scratch that. Here's him. Few things are needed. Scratch that. Or indeed, only one. And he says, and Mary has chosen that which is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Do you see what he's saying? Martha's doing the right thing. She's using her gifts and abilities to be able to serve me, but you've missed something. It's not about all about doing, what, doing these things and how to do these things. It's about pursuing me. It's about taking me in, about a relationship with me. And, and this is what I, we need to understand. Let us never lose sight of what you and I and our children and our husband and our wives and our neighbors need most. We need Jesus. That's what we need this morning. No matter what it is that you would say, this is what I want more than anything else, what we need is Christ. We don't simply need wisdom. When we come together on Sunday morning to be able to worship and to study the word, or whether it be in small groups, or whether it be through extensive discipleship classes that we have, or one-on-one discipleship, or wherever it is, please understand when we come, that we're not merely coming to be able to, to get wisdom on how to manage finances, our marriages, raise our kids, or run our church. That is not primarily, are those things good? Absolutely. Is it good to know how to have a godly marriage? Yes. Is it good to manage finances in a biblical way? Yes. All of those things are good, but there is something far greater, and that is knowing and having a heart after Jesus Christ. Hearts that care to be described by nothing other than a relationship with Christ. And that love and that pursuit comes from knowing where in you and I came from. That's where that love is sparked. And that's where that spark or that love continues to grow. So first of all, here's a man. He's asked to describe himself. How does he describe himself? He describes himself in relation to God. Number two. David's description of the ideal king. Look at verse 23. Now, this is a little technical. Follow along with me if you can. Verse 233, it says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His words in, uh, is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Let's unpack that for a minute. What David is actually doing is he's giving two qualifications that make up the ideal ruling king. What does that look like? And he wants us to know this is just his list. He didn't just come up with this. In fact, this was given to him by God. He emphasizes, emphasizes that four different times. He says, the Lord speaks his word. God of Israel has spoken, and the rock has said to me. So God is speaking through David to let each and every one of us know what an ultimate king looks like. And so he gives us these two qualities. Quality number one, righteousness. Righteousness. Notice what he says in that next phrase. He says that he is to do what? He is one who rules justly over men. To rule justly means you always do what is right. You're always doing what is right. You're always doing what is just, not only for yourself, but for everybody around you, even those who are serving you. You are a just God. It's righteousness that he's speaking about. The second quality is reverence. Look what he writes. He says that he must rule in the fear of God. Now, this is not some trembling fear that you're afraid that he's, God's going to zap you. This is a holy reverence which says nothing is more important than God's will. 
Not my will, not somebody else's will, not what I want, but what God wants. I may want other things, but it takes a second seat to the will of God. And he says, this is what makes an ideal king, righteousness and reverence before God. Now, the question is, we get through that, then we say, but who is David talking about? This is where it gets weird. You say, who is David talking about? Is David describing himself, or is he describing another king that is ultimately going to come? This is the difficulty, by the way, with Old Testament prophecies. You'll get this. Some of you understand. When you're reading an Old Testament prophecy, you're reading, and you're like, oh, I know who they're talking about. And you get to the end, you're like, oh, they're talking about somebody else. They're not talking about the guy they were talking about here. Or you begin to read the prophecy, and you're like, oh, oh I, I know what's going to happen. This sounds like this is, this is the next thing that happens in the event of history. But then you keep reading on, and you're like, no, 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 that doesn't happen until much, much later. It's kind of like this. Have you ever seen kind of like a, a mountain range from a distance? see the mountain range, and it looks like just a bunch of different mountains all clumped together. And you look at it, and you're like, wow, look at all those mountains just clumped together, one stacked right on top of each other. And you look at it, and then you get closer, and you realize man, these, these mountains aren't right next to each other at all. They're miles apart, sometimes 10, even 20 miles apart. But from a distance, kind of like in, in a, in a prophecy-type view, they look as though they're all together. Well, that's what's happening here a little bit. As he begins to talk, we don't know if he's talking about right then or if he's talking a 1,000 years in the future. Which one is he talking about? Is he talking about him or is he talking about someone else? Is he talking about Solomon, his, his son to come? Or is he talking about somebody else a thousand years from the time of David? Well, I believe that he's talking about a thousand years from the time of David, that he's talking about the ultimate king who is the person of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how can we be sure about this? Well, first of all, we do know that David did prophesy about Christ. If he never prophesied about him, then we certainly can't interpret this text as him doing so. So how do we know that? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 31, there on the day of Pentecost, uh, uh, Peter begins to preach, and he begins to preach of the fact that David was not only a king, but he was also a prophet, and he prophesied that Jesus Christ would come, die, and be resurrected. He said it this way, being there a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So we do know that he talked about Jesus, prophesied about a coming Jesus, but how do we know that that's what he means here? Now, we see it all through his psalms. By the way, when you read the psalms, understand the greatest fulfillment of every psalm that, that David is writing is not himself, but it is about a greater king that is to come. But how do we know this passage, his last will and testament, is specifically about a greater king and a greater rule? Well, look at the details of it. Can we really say that either Dave or David or Solomon or any one of the other kings that come immediately after him are truly righteous? Can we say that about David? Not if you've been reading the same story that we are. Here is a man that truly is loving God, but yet is falling in many ways. Can we say that he's a man who revered God? I don't think he was revering God when he was committing adultery with Bathsheba, not at all, or murdering her husband. He wasn't sincere about doing the will of God on some occasions. So what they're talking about here is they're describing somebody who is absolutely righteous, somebody who is absolutely revering God. And then, and then there's another thing. Notice this. He says the rules justly over men. He's not, when he talks about men, he's not just talking about a nation like David did. He's talking about all humankind. David ruled, Solomon ruled over Israel, but only one king would come and rule every, over every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. 
This is essential to who this king is. And just in case we're not sure if it's Jesus, let's look at one more hint in verse 5. Look at this. David said again, he said in verse 5, For does not my house stand so with God? For he had made with me an everlasting covenant. The most important passage in this entire book is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's there that once David became a king, that that God made him a covenant promise just like he did with Abraham. In fact, it follows that same same landscape of that promise. It just just fills it out even more. Here's what he said to him. Now listen. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, which means you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now, up to this point, who does it sound like? This is that whole mountain thing again. Sounds like Solomon. That fits him, but not this last part. The last part of the prophecy is this, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Did Solomon rule forever? No. Did David rule forever? No. Did any of the kings of Israel rule forever after that point? No, only one fits the bill. There is only one righteous, reverent, forever reigning king over all humankind, Jesus Christ. And you sit back and go, well, that's great. Why is that important? Because that's the message of the church. It's the message of the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not come to Jesus And he will give you all the desires of your hearts. And he will take away every temporal problem and difficulty in your life. Yet, it's what you hear person after person after person using to be able to lead people, to get them to come and join a church and be a follower of Jesus Christ. Is this news that he's going to take all that away? Now, eventually, we know he will. Amen? And I look forward to that day. Not maybe tomorrow or the next day, but at one point, I certainly look forward to that. And you would say the same exact thing. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're hoodwinking people. That's false advertising. I think that there are seriously sincere followers of Jesus Christ who have been regenerated and born again right here in this place. Can I hear an amen? Amen. All right, then that's you. Then let me ask you, has Jesus given you every desire of your heart, everything that you've ever asked, and has he taken away every single difficulty in your life? Absolutely not. First of all, he loves you too much to give everything your wicked heart desires. And number two, he loves you too much not to allow difficulties in your life because he knows the moment you do, you will turn from him and you'll never depend on him again. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so we see this, and here's the gospel. And so when we come to people, when we're sharing the gospel message, here's part of that message. There is a king, a right king, a righteous and just and holy king who is your creator. And you are in great need of him because you have rebelled against him. You have rebelled against him, and the sins in which you've committed have now made you guilty before him, and the wrath of God is now storing up for you on the day of judgment. And unless you turn and repent and place your faith in the work that he has done for you, you will all likewise perish. It's amazing to me how people will sit around and they don't get that aspect of the gospel. If you read about Jesus, it's always about Jesus' reign. It's always about Jesus coming and reigning and and his kingdom and and being identified as the king. And then at the end, what are we all doing? We're in his kingdom, praising and worshiping him and all doing what? Submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet people leave that whole part out of the gospel. And if you do, it's no longer the gospel. So there's a third point here. Let me give it to you very quickly. 
The third thing is, first of all, he describes himself. Secondly, he describes the ideal king. And third, he describes the ideal rule. That this is what this kingdom is going to be based on. This is how it's going to ultimately function. Now, there are two problems with every kingdom. I think you know this. I think we could agree. Number one, on the first, the first side, there are rogue leaders who are supposed to be doing the right thing for the people, but they do what's right for themselves, and they actually oppress those who they were serving. I think we could agree on that, right? And then on the other side, there are good kingdoms or good governments, but on the other side, you have rogue citizens who are refusing to do the thing that the government states that they should ultimately do, even when it's righteous and it's good before God. Well, Jesus Christ, praise God, is the answer to both of these problems. He's the answer, first of all, to rogue leaders. How? Well, follow with me the flow in verse 3 again into verse 4. He says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Now notice the result in verse 4. He says, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. He says, when he reigns over his people, this is how intensely refreshing his reign is. Isn't that beautiful? When I read that, I, I want to I put on some Birkenstocks and pet a bunny. You know what I mean? Just, you just kind of, this is beautiful. The sunrise, I love this. This is, this is beautiful stuff. And, and the truth is, this is truly, now listen to me, this is truly how the citizens of the kingdom of God feel about God's reign over them. They view it as refreshing. They view it as enlightening. They view it as life-giving. They don't look at it as being oppressive. And the truth is that, that even though there, we, are, we sit back and we, and we look at um, the kingdom of God, many times we make decisions based on, or at least our kingdoms, even though there are good leaders, there are good kingdoms. And, and certainly we should pray for that, should we not? We should pray for our government, pray for our leaders, pray that God would raise men and women up that would rule well, righteously, and also in the fear of God. All that's there. We should certainly do all of that, but we also know that there are certainly those that are capable of corruption, many times making decisions based only on what will further their bank accounts, their careers, and their power. What's refreshing about Jesus is that Jesus can never be swayed by any of these things. How do you sway a man who owns everything? How in the world do you, do you possibly uh, sway somebody by advancement when they're the rightful ruler of the earth and they hold the title deed of that earth? How in the world do you sway somebody for more power when they've been given all power and authority by their heavenly Father and that within their words itself lies the power of life and death? This is a man, this is a ruler that cannot be swayed, cannot be bribed, cannot be manipulated, but always does what is right and always seeks the will of God and always the very best for his people. That, to me, is refreshing. That, to me, is the type of kingdom that I desperately want to belong with and I'm grateful that I am. Now, there's a second thing here, though. He was always, we, we understand something, that, that, that not only is this what it is, but my question to you is, this is always what God's kingdom has been. This is always what God's reign has been like. 
And some of you understand that. In other words, let me, let me say it this way. There were some of you who came to faith in Jesus Christ older. Some of you, when you were very young, you know, before you were doing drugs and you were, you were doing all these crazy things, and, and you came to faith, but it's, it's kind of, you can't remember almost a time not walking in the faith because you were so young. Some of you, that's not the way that it's been. Some of you have, have come to faith older in life. And when somebody came up to you and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you, you thought they were crazy. You thought they were nuts. You wanted them to get out of your face. The last thing in the world you believe was that the teaching of the Bible and the commands of God were a good thing. You viewed them as oppressive because you and I viewed them as what? As taking away your joy and telling you not to do the things that your heart desperately wanted to be able to do. And then you're sitting here as a miracle of God and you're sitting there and going, yeah, but all that has changed. All that has changed. The, the, the law of God and the commands of God and the person of God, what I wanted nothing to be able to do with, I now want I desire to do his will. I desire to be able to pursue him. How in the world did that happen? By the gracious act of God, by giving you the precious gift of faith. He then changed who you are from the inside out, regenerated you, so now you want the things that you used to hate and you hate the things that you used to love. And not only does he give you a new wanter, now he places the spirit of God inside of you that drives you to do the things that this wonderful God has called you to do. This is all a wonderful miracle of God. This is what he has done. This is what he's called us to. And so this is how he, this is how he overdoes or, or solves the problem of rogue leaders, by being the perfect leader. Then he also, as the word of God says, has an answer for the rogue citizens. No matter what Jesus Christ has done, no matter how good he has been, no matter how gracious he has been to the people on this earth, there will always be those who reject him. There will always be those who try to, 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 to turn their back on him, to, to try to rebel against him. And, and the Bible says that there is something that God will do with them as well. He says there in verse six and seven, he says, but worthless men are all like thorns that are, grown, that, that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand, But the man who touches them arms himself with iron in a shaft of spear, and they were utterly consumed with fire. You know, it's a really, really great way to end a message, and that is with hell. It's what everybody gets up for in the morning is, I hope I get to hear the good hell sermon. But this is just as much a reality of the good news of Jesus Christ than Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And what he's letting us know is he's giving each and every one of us a warning. And that warning is simply this. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Unless you recognize that you are sinner, then you will get and I will get what we ultimately deserve. See, the problem is many people are thinking that, well, I certainly don't deserve hell. And the problem is because you don't understand sin. You don't understand what we've done against a ruling, wonderful, omniscient, all-powerful, loving God of the universe. When we understand that we've sinned against him, then we begin to understand more, more, more clearly that we actually deserve the very judgment that God gives to each of those who have denied him and refused to submit to him. It's amazing to me as a pastor how many people will speak of heaven, or, or especially around funeral time, and for good reason. People are looking for some type of hope. They're looking for some, something to place their faith in, Something that knows, believe that this isn't the end, and if it is the end, it's not a bad end, it's a good end. And and they speak of their desires to to, to want to go there. They even speak with confidence that they will go there when they die. And yet there is all the reason in the world to be skeptical of their claim 
because they seem to want nothing to do with the king of that kingdom. What makes heaven, the kingdom of heaven, attractive is not the place, but it's the person. What makes heaven attractive is that the king himself is attractive. That's what makes us long to be there. The question by John Piper was asked a long time ago, for you, answer this question honestly, would heaven be heaven if you got everything you wanted to see your old relatives and not to be in pain and not to be in poverty anymore, and yet Jesus wasn't there? He says, that's no heart of a true redeemed believer because those things are not our great reward. Jesus Christ is our great reward. So here's where we end with this. I think here's the response. I think there's at least three things that we need to do this morning. I think number one, let us all respond this morning by praying that God would give us hearts that love Jesus above all else. I know that you pray for your children and you pray for your husband and you pray for your wife. And and I'm sure I could probably guess what those prayers are. Help little Bobby be a good little boy, get good little grades, grow up to, to be a good working citizen and, and help him to get a good wife and healthy children and, and help them grow and just keep them safe the whole time. Don't let them get in a whole lot of college debt. Don't let them get with the wrong crowd and, and just let them just be a good old boy. And you know what? I wouldn't blame you for praying, any, for, for praying for any of that. It's okay. I just think there's something far greater for you to be praying for your children about. And that is God Let them never forget where they came from and the condition that they were in, in their midst of their lostness. And let them never be able to outlive them. Let that impact them every day of their life and give them a great craving for you so that they want nothing else except for the person of Jesus Christ. And you know what I've learned? When that happens, all that other stuff falls in its appropriate place. Number two, Let us respond by recognizing Christ as Lord and recognize that he is good and his reign and commands are good. You don't have to be embarrassed with a lost world who says that you're narrow-minded and this stuff is judgmental and everything else. These judgments of God, we've come to realize, is God loving us. When he says don't, he says don't because it will hurt you if you do. I love you and I want the best for you. And this is what it looks like to live a life unto me. And you know what I love about that poem when, it, you know, when we're sitting there wearing the Birkenstocks and petting the, pun, pup, uh, the, the bunny? When we go back to that thing, it keeps talking about light and refreshment. Isn't that what God did when he saved you? All of a sudden, the light bulb come on like in a dark room and all of a sudden things begin to make sense to you. You begin to look around for the very first time and go, you know what? For the first time, I know why I'm here. For the first time, I know what the meaning of life is. For the first time, I understand why the world is in the mess that it's in. That's what he does. He he, he turns the light on. And then what does he end up doing? And then he ends up giving us these commands with a desire to be able to do them. And then we're blessed for doing them. How good of a God is this? Let's recognize how good he is at reigning over our lives. Third thing I would say is let us take away, uh, take whatever area in our lives that are not submitted to him and submit ourselves humbly to his leadership and lordship. The truth is, is look, here's the thing that I love. I heard a gentleman say this last week. God has changed us, amen, if you're saved. You're not who you need to be, nor will you ever be until we see him face to face, 
and that means you're dead, all right? And, and so, so what happens is, but we're going to grow. He, he promises to, to complete the work that he's already begun in us, so we're going to keep growing in him. But the Bible says it like this. All of those wonderful things are just first fruits, just first fruits. It's just the beginning of what the work he's doing inside of you. Just, just the, the first couple apples that are coming in, that goodness and that change inside of your life is just the first fruits of what God is gonna do in a great harvest when you and I are transformed in the image and likeness of Christ and with him for all eternity. Let's praise him for that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. We do honor you and praise you. And God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the intentiveness of the people here God, I, I know that I'm not always clear, and I'm more aware of that than the people who are here. But I'm dependent upon you to be able to take even what might be poor attempts and to use it for your glory to bring understanding to the hearts of those who are here for people to repent to be saved to call out to your praise and your glory God you can do all that I ask that you will in your precious name we pray amen let's stand together and uh, I'm going to be down here Here's we've already given the invitation said what it is but let me say specifically if you're just here this morning and you find yourself wanting to know more about Christ, you want to know more about what all this is about, I'm just going to ask you, if you can't come, we'd like to talk with you. We're, we're not, we don't want to rush things. We're going to counsel with you. We just want to make sure that we clear up any fogginess that there is. But other than that, let's respond. If you need to come and pray, if you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you want to pray where you are, just do something with the Word of God that you've heard, all right, as we respond.